Uh, open to the book of 1 John. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. And in, in those Bibles, 1 John is on page uh, 1,218. Uh, 1,218. And in a moment, I'll start reading in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, you probably don't know anyone suffering from too much encouragement. I mean, there's, there's the flattery, you know, that is too much and over the top and things. But in terms of real encouragement, most of us, we need more and not less. Most of us are aware of many ways in which we're falling short. Even if we might be blind to some other areas that people wish that we saw, we're often very aware of many shortcomings. Most of us know that we could do better. Most of us need encouragement, and we need it from each other. And in fact, when we look at the commands given to local churches, individual churches, one of the things we see over and over again is the need to encourage one another. So Hebrews 10.25, which is a, a verse we often bring out in talking about the need to gather regularly. And it's a verse that does teach that, not to forsake this assembling that we're doing right now, but to gather regularly. But notice what also it says. It says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, there's a need to encourage. You can think of that word as speech that relieves sorrow or distress, that comforts, that cheers up. You see it there. We see Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. What I love there is he's both commanding encouragement and practicing it. He says, encourage one another, and you're doing it. Like, well done, in other words. He's, he's seeing this evidence of grace as they're encouraging one another, and he's encouraging them for doing that. It's both commanded and practiced here. Encouragement is part of a gospel culture of a church. Rather than a church that is always pointing out ways in which others are falling short, and there's there a biblical practice of correction, don't get me wrong, but a church that is consumed with that and neglects encouragement is in that sense neglecting gospel culture rather than saying to one another, I see what God is doing in your life. I'm so grateful for the way that his grace is evident and that you've grown in this and you're serving here. You're expressing this kindness. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for these strengths I see in your life. That ought to be part of a gospel culture of a church as we see God at work and we recognize that. We might sometimes wonder, how, how do we do it? How do we encourage? Well, Romans 15, 4 points to the way that God's word is used in that. It says whatever was written in earlier times, in the context there, it's talking about the, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. As we gather around God's word, teaching times like this, but also just sharing with one another what we're learning from God's word and we're chewing on it together, that is a form of encouragement because we're pointing to truth and reminding people of truth. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, it points to another way. As Paul is making plans to go visit these believers in Rome, he says, I'm going that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith both yours and mine. He's writing and saying, I, want, I need to be encouraged by you as well. And as we gather and as we spend time together and we talk about what God's doing in my life and in your life, that is an encouragement from one another's faith. 
A challenging book like 1 John, I think, can intensify our need for encouragement. And you might have felt that some as we go through 1 John. 1 John lacks nuance. It, it over and over again speaks with, with clarity, saying things about our need for obedience. Not as a thing that saves us, but as an evidence of one who has been saved. An evidence of being one who, who knows God. Uh, of love for one another. And we can hear that, and we can sometimes feel discouraged. And right in the middle of this now is this beautiful pocket of encouragement. Well, in this passage, the first half of what we'll see today, it is not a passage that has commands. It's not correcting. It's not pointing out sin. It's not warning. It's just encouraging. And, and to the believers he's writing to here, He's saying, this is what I see in you. And he's reminding them of it. And we'll do that today. We'll look at that first half of this passage and we'll see encouragement. And then he follows it up with warning. And it's a warning that's one of the more famous ones in 1 John about loving the world. But notice that the warning flows out of the encouragement. He says, this is what's true of you. Believe it, remember it, be encouraged. Now in light of that, be warned. But it starts with encouragement. We read it now. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Two parts then to this, encouragement and a warning. And so we'll start with this encouragement in verses 12 to 14. There's a poetic feel to these verses. And you may have noticed it as we read it. There's a repetition. Uh, there's uh, some, some translations even set it aside like poetry. And I think it's for a reason. I think it is to make this stand out. In the midst of a letter that provides warning and challenge, kind of pauses and almost gives a poem, uh, reminding them of what they have in Christ, reminding them what's true of them. And the language about children and fathers and young men that's repeated twice, that has kind of stumped interpreters sometimes. They wonder, is this referring to different stages of spiritual growth? Is he writing about children in the faith, meaning new believers, whether young or old, young believers who've grown, whether young or old, or fathers as these mature believers? That's possible. The problem is what he says about each stage is true of all of them. It's, they're simply gospel truths that they have in Christ, whether they're new believers, really, for the most part, or mature believers. There's a lot of overlap there in these categories. Some have wondered, then, is it just about age? Is he, as he's addressing this group, talking to those that are 
just younger people, children, literally, young men and women, and then seasoned older believers. That's also possible. The terms like father and young men are are used that way in Scripture. I don't know that we can say for sure, because again, each of these things is really true of really all believers that are growing. And so rather than getting caught up with who is each of these groups representing, I think we look at it as just encouragement to believers, describing things that are true of them, perhaps some more so of areas of maturity and age than others, but, but really of an encouragement of what's true of believers. And again, notice in verses 12 to 14, uh, there's no warning, there's no command, there's no critique, there's no do better. It's just, I'm writing to you because these things are true of you. And this is what I'm reminding you of. So let's look at each of these. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And then he returns to the children at the end of verse 14, because you know the Father. After explaining that growing obedience is an evidence of saving faith, we saw that the end of chapter 1, we saw that in chapter 2, he'll continue to circle back to that growing obedience as an evidence of one who knows the Lord, comes back again to this clarifying truth that your sins have been forgiven you. Because you can kind of feel a weight of, man, I, I, I do want to obey, but I fall short. And he's reminding them, and it's reminding us, your, your sins, those, those ways that you fall short, are forgiven. And not just forgiven, it's Specific at the end of verse 12, put your eyes there. Forgiven you for his name's sake. Communicates two things, for his name's sake. It communicates that your forgiveness is not just about you. It doesn't just end with you, like you're forgiven, that's great. Oh, we, we need to be forgiven. But it, it displays God's glory. It is for his name's sake. And so that your sin, washed away, taken away, shows the greatness and the goodness of God. It is for his name's sake in that sense. But it's also for his name's sake, meaning that is why you are forgiven. It is not because you started doing better or loving more, but it is for his sake. It is because of him. It is because of Christ. I heard a great illustration of this this week, and some of you might have heard it as well. It was by a pastor named Herschel York, who pastors in Kentucky. And he, he used the illustration from an event that you probably did hear about, a week earlier, where two activist protesters went into an art museum in London and to protest fossil fuels and things, they, they went up to a Van Gogh painting. It's the kind of famous sunflower painting that Van Gogh did. And they opened up two cans of tomato soup and they threw it on the painting. This painting, I mean, it's, it's priceless in one sense. It's more than 100 years old. If they were to value it, they perhaps value it at $85 million. And these two protesters threw this soup all over it. And then they took glue and put it on their hands and they glued themselves to the wall. And, and watching it, it's, there's a sense of injustice, of anger. Like, how could they do that to this work of art? It's now, is it now ruined? It looks to be. Later in the day, though, the art museum released a statement 
saying that from this attack, there was some damage done to the frame around it, but the painting is unharmed. And the reason the painting was unharmed is because there was a thin layer of glass on top of the painting. You almost couldn't see it, but that attack, all it did was hit the glass, and they could clean it off. What a picture of substitution. And when this says in our passage, you're forgiven for his name's sake, why are you forgiven? Why am I forgiven? It's because what we deserve was taken by another. It was taken by Christ. And you are forgiven for his name's sake because he took on the cross what you deserve and what I deserve. That consequences of our sin have splashed on our frame in one sense and that our lives feel that. We experience the consequences in some way. But the ultimate accounting has been taken by Christ. Friends, you are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice in this verse, though, he's not urging them to believe this, to repent and come to faith in Christ. He's saying, you have done this. Your sins are forgiven. Remember, essentially. The other thing he says to this group of children, which we'll cover them in groups, just in case there is perhaps a tie-in to stages of life or maturity, he says at the end of verse 13, children, you know the Father Not only are your sins forgiven, he says, you know the Father. Not just know about, but you know him. Some people say it this way, that the gospel is about God. The gospel, it gets us to God. It gets our sin out of the way, so we come to God. Not merely that our sin is forgiven, but that we we know him. This is what 1 Peter emphasizes, 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also died for sins once for all. He took what was meant for us. The just for the unjust, meaning him perfect, us not. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Not merely sins forgiven, but brought to God, to know him. Think about maybe somebody famous that you know about. Maybe they're an actor, an athlete, a musician. You've listened to their music, you've watched their stuff. Maybe you even stalk them on social media and you, know, you feel like you know things about them. You don't know them. There's people in their lives that do, though. There's family, there's friends that don't know them as this actor, but just as dad or his friend. It's this type of knowledge. I think in in high school, there was a friend of mine who was distantly related to uh, Robert Downey Jr., who's the guy who plays, like, Iron Man and stuff. Uh, And I think it was, like, his mom's cousin. And they they went to his house one time. And on his fridge, when I went to visit my friend, there was a picture of, like, Robert Downey Jr. eating breakfast. And he has, like, bed head, like, his hair's all messed up and not like a movie star. That's just, they just, they knew him, not about him. And that's this knowledge that says, children, you know the Father. And then it speaks to fathers, And it uses the same language of knowing. That's why I see there's overlap between these groups. Look at verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And that's repeated again in verse 14. You know him who has been from the beginning. Because that was repeated earlier in 1 John chapter 1, we likely see that as a reference to to Jesus himself. The beginning of his ministry and now the beginning of their walking with him. And if this is referring to those that are either older in the faith or just older people, then they've known him for longer. 
And if that is a way to take it, I want you to think about the benefit to a church body of having believers who have walked with Christ and known Christ for a long time. Every time I teach our Discovering UBC class about our church, I talk about how even though we are a university church, university Bible church, we've always wanted to have not just college students, but the whole range of ages. One, we think that's a biblical model of a church, not just to hit a target audience, but, but all. But also, college students need retirees. They need families with kids. They need people who have walked with Jesus for a lot longer than them. They need people who have walked with Christ through economic recessions, miscarriages, church conflict, budget shortfalls, community changes, political movements, on and on and on. Young people need believers that have known Jesus through all of those things. And that's what he's affirming these fathers. He says, you have known him who has been from the beginning. And then last he turns to young men. And he says, and again, things that are true, I think, really of all believers. Uh, at the end of verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And the end of verse 14, he circles back. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Overcome the evil one is picked back up as a theme later in 1 John in a passage we'll cover at length when we get to chapter 4. It says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. And then notice what he says next. You are from God, little children, using that same language, and have overcome them. Why? How have we overcome? How have we overcome the evil one? about Satan himself, uh, those that are on his team in one sense. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So he reminds them, you have overcome the evil one, not because of some strength in yourself, but because of Christ. You are strong. Verse 14, notice again, it's not a command to be strong. He's not saying be strong. Sometimes we see that command in Scripture, like Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord. But 1 John says, you are strong. Basically saying, that's what you're commanded to do, and, and I see it in you. You are being strong in the Lord. And God's word abides in you. It is in your life. It is in your heart. I see it. These are truths to, to just remind yourself of. And I think that's what's happening here. That's a form of encouragement. Saying, Lord, not, not because of some virtue in myself, but because I'm in Christ, these things are true of me. That's the thing to remind yourself of when you're discouraged. Or maybe you're going to head into a really hard conversation. You have to confront somebody, or you know somebody's going to confront you. You don't know how this is going to go. You're fearful. Stop and read this passage. And remember, this is, this is true of me. My sins have been forgiven. Whatever this person says about me, and that may be true, and I may have things to learn. There may be sins they point out. My sins are forgiven. Doesn't mean I don't work on them. But they're forgiven. And I know God. And I'm strong in him. Not on my own strength, but in him. And I've overcome the evil one. That is not like, just like positive self-talk. That can be like a, um, can be a, a movement that people caught up in, get caught up in if I just say the right things and remind myself of the right things. But in a way that goes beyond Scripture, this is simply 
going back to like what God's word says and, and reminding yourself of that, that this is true of me because I'm in Christ. So this passage that starts, it starts with encouragement. No commands, no critiques, no warnings, just encouragement. This is true of you if you're in Christ. And then it moves into a warning. And we ought not to separate those two things. Because the warning really flows out of the encouragement. It says, this is what's true of you in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. You have overcome the evil one. And yet, even though that's true, here's a warning to be mindful of. And so let's look at that next. This warning, it's one of the more famous warnings in 1 John. And it picks up in verse 15. And it's a warning about the world. Do not love the world is this warning There are two key words in this passage that affect how we understand the passage. Love and world. Do not love the world. Because you might have a question that pops up based on John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why is it that God loved the world, but you are commanded, do not love the world? That can seem contradictory. It has to do with a different sense of love and world in this. God's love is a holy love of redemption. Wanting to draw people from the world to himself. This love that's warned about is a selfish love of participation. God's love aims to save the sinner, to to bring the person to himself from sin. This is a love of participating in that sin, sharing in that sin. So no, do not love the world and the world there can, can refer to different things. world can be used of like the globe, the earth, or it can be used of the people on the earth, or it can be used, as it is here, of a world system that is opposed to God and its thinking and behavior. And as we start to walk through, what does this passage say about the world? We see that that's what's in mind. It's not the people of the world. We are to love the world in the sense of the people of the world. But this system that people are caught up in, that is opposed to God, that is anti-God, we are not to love that. I want to walk briefly through what the New Testament says about the world, because it helps us to understand this command. I'm going to show you four things, kind of quick, that we see just observing from from God's Word. The world, we see, is a system that's opposed to God in its thinking and behavior. It's opposed to God in its thinking and behavior. We we see this in a passage like John 15, 18 to 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's describing this opposition towards God, that as people are aligned with God, that will point to them as well. So it's this system, if you will, that is opposed to God. It's a system that all of us are in prior to coming to Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. It's it's prior to a famous passage in Ephesians 2 that talks about how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But before that, it describes the condition that all of us find ourselves in. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So the world is not just everybody out there. It was all of us at some point before we came to Christ, whether we were younger or older at that point. All of us would follow in the ways of the world then, prior to coming to Christ. The world is under the power and influence of the evil one. 
We see that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Think of that following up from what we just saw in verses 12 to 14, where it says you have overcome the evil one. And yet the whole world, apart from Christ, in some way lies in the power of the evil one in an imperceptible way, perhaps, to people, in a way that's just like a fish swimming through water. And yet it says that is the power and influence. And then finally, believers are still in the world, but must not be, I'm going to use the word polluted. It's going to use a couple different words here. Affected in some way by the world. We are pulled out of it. We are saved from it. We have overcome, and yet we see warnings like this. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Even for a believer, even one who has, their sins are forgiven, they know the Father, they've overcome, all those things we just saw can still be stained by the world that we're in. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We could be conformed, pressed into the mold of this world, even though we're saved, we're forgiven, we know the Father. That's still a danger that we are warned of. So, that's why it says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. He'll go on in verse 16 to describe what those things of the world are. But just to briefly speak to that, it's not talking about necessarily like things that are just beautiful and good and true in God's world. There's so much that we, that we see and we appreciate in God's world. Maybe even this morning coming in, it was funny to see different responses. Some people come into the flakes of snow outside and the cold wind and they're excited. The seasons are changing. Others are like, this is awful, right? I would be in that first category. I, I love it. I love it when the leaves are changing. I love it when we see the first snow up in the hills. It's things like that we love in God's world. I don't think that's what's in mind. When we use it that sense of an appreciation of the beauty and truth and goodness that God has placed in his world. We see that in art. We see it in music. But what it is referring to is what he describes in verse 16. He sings of this this lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. So as we, as we unpack that, I want you to see why. It gives us this warning, do not love the world, that flows out of the encouragement for what you already have. And then it gives us two reasons not to love the world. First is because it is incompatible with loving the Father. It is incompatible with loving the Father. It says, if anyone loves the world, this is the end of verse 15, the love of the Father is not in him. In some way, the two are, are mutually exclusive. Some loves are not like that. There are some loves that are complementary and inclusive. In the sense of, you think of like a parent who already has a couple kids and they have another child. They don't say like, I'm sorry, Timmy, I'm going to have to love you less because I have to give some of that love to this new baby. No, that love expands. But we know, even just in human relationships, that some loves are mutually exclusive. Imagine you propose marriage to someone, and your would-be fiancé responds, yes, I will marry you, I do love you in a sense, and I'll cooperate in a home with you, and I'll be your partner, but you need to know that I love someone else more. But yes, I'll take the ring, right? Um, what would you counsel that person? You'd say, don't. 
don't marry that person. There is an exclusivity to this marital love. Likewise, there is an exclusivity to this type of love that is contrasted between a love for the Father and a love for the world. Similar language in James 4.4 where it says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. It's this exclusivity, this language. And as we see what is described in the world in verse 16, we see why that is the case. It's not talking about the changing leaves or the cold fall air. It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Meaning these desires that come from our flesh, which is a way of talking about our, our, our sinful nature that still resides in the believer. It can pull us away to things that are not of God. Things that we see with our eyes, the lust of the eyes, meaning I, I see and I want. Whether that is sexual sin, your eyes constantly wandering to attractive people in person or online and then going further. It, it, it could be that, but it's certainly not limited to that. Especially as it spills over into this boastful pride of life. There can be a way in which we see and we want the life that somebody else is portraying. This is especially, I think, dangerous like on social media where somebody can portray a certain influencer life that looks like all they do is they have fun and they drive nice cars and they live in a beautiful house and, and, and they're presenting this life. And rather than being content with the life that God has given you, you covet this life and this look and this car and these things. That can be an expression of this. As that person is caught up in the boastful pride of life, boasting in the possessions they have, and you're caught up in the desire and longing for that in a way that is pulling you away from loving God. And it's a way that also is temporary. Because the next thing he says about why we should not love the world is because it is passing away. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away. Passing away, that term can be used of like the curtain coming down at the end of a scene in a play. The curtain comes down, the scene is over, the furniture is taken off the stage, a new setting is made, but it's passing away. And it says that is this world. And in a sense, every time we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Isn't that what we're praying? God, your kingdom come. May this world that is in opposition to you, again, that's the focus, it pass away. Why would we set our heart on that which is passing away? A great illustration of this that I liked. There's a, a character actor named Charles Dutton. When you see his image in a minute, you might recognize him. He had a, has had a successful career as an actor. He won a golden, well, he's nominated for a Golden Globe. He won multiple Emmys. He ended up uh, going to the Yale School of Drama, graduating from there. He's had a successful career. But in his late teens and early 20s, you would not have thought that. He was in jail for seven years for manslaughter, other offenses as well. And it was actually while he was in jail that he developed a, a love for acting and, and that kind of launched out of there. But he was asked at one point, why is it that you could make the transition from jail into this successful career when so many other guys can't, when, when jail is like a revolving door for so many people? Why was it not for you? And, and this is what he said. Unlike other prisoners, I never decorated my cell. 
because I wanted to be reminded every day that this place is temporary. Because I don't want to be living for the jail. I wanted to be reminded, in fact, that it was temporary. Likewise, this, this passage is telling us that this world is temporary. E- even in the big sense of like, God will make a new heavens and new earth, even the good things are temporary and will be remade into something even better. But in particular, this world system that is opposed to God, and we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. One day his kingdom will come, and that which is opposed to him will be done away. Why would we live for something so temporary? As we wrap up this passage, the applications are built in, aren't they? Be encouraged. And some of you, that might be what you need. You, you are discouraged. You, you see your sin before you. You know you've trusted in Christ, and yet you, you see your failings, your, your love that is not a perfect love. Life is hard right now, and you might just need to be encouraged. You might need to soak on verses 12 to 14 and just be reminded, my sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I know God. I've overcome the evil one. I, I'm strong, not in my own strength, but in Christ. God's word abides in me. You might just need to be reminded of those things and be encouraged. But you also might need to be warned because this passage warns us that there's something attractive and drawing about the world that we must not love. Let's pray.